This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism, a study in nature and development of spiritual consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. First half of part one, chapter two. Mysticism and Vitalism We glanced at the beginning of this inquiry, at the universes which result from the various forms of credulity practised by the materialist, the idealist, and the sceptic. We saw the mystic denying by word and act the validity of the foundations on which those universes are built, substituting his living experience for their conceptual schemes. But there is another way of seeing reality, or, more correctly, one aspect of reality. This scheme of things possesses the merit of accepting and harmonizing many different forms of experience, even those supreme experiences and intuitions peculiar to the mystics. The first distinct contribution of the twentieth century to man's quest of the real, it entered the philosophic arena from several different directions penetrating and modifying current conceptions not only of philosophy, but of religion, science, art, and practical life. It was applied by Driesch and other biologists in the sphere of organic life. Bergson, starting from psychology, developed its intellectual and metaphysical implications, whilst Rudolf Eucken constructed from, or beside it, a philosophy of the spirit of man's relations to the real. In all these we find the same principle, the principle of a free, spontaneous and creative life as the essence of reality. Not law, but aliveness, incalculable and indomitable, is their subject matter. Not human logic, but actual living experience is their criterion of truth. Vitalists, whether the sphere of the explorations be biology, psychology, or ethics, see the whole cosmos, the physical and spiritual worlds, as instinct with initiative and spontaneity, as above all things free. For them, nature, though conditioned by the matter with which she works, is stronger than her chains. Pushing out from within, ever seeking expression, she buds and breaks forth into original creation. The iron laws of the determinists are merely her observed habits, not her fetters. And man, seeing nature in the terms of cause and effect, has been the dupe of his own limitations and prejudices. Bergson, Nietzsche, Eucken, differing in their opinion as to life's meaning, are alike in this vision, in the stress which they lay on the supreme importance and value of life a great cosmic life transcending and including our own. This is materialism inside out, for here what we call the universe is presented as an expression of life, not life as an expression or by-product of the universe. The strange, passionate philosophy of Nietzsche is really built upon an intense belief in the supernal nature and value of life, action and strength, and spoilt by the one-sided individualism which prevented him from holding a just balance between the great and significant life of the ego 
and the greater and more significant life of the all. Obviously, the merit of vitalistic philosophy lies in its ability to satisfy so many different thinkers, starting from such diverse points in our common experience. On the phenomenal side, it can accept and transfigure the statements of physical science. In its metaphysical aspect, it leaves place for those ontological speculations which seem to take their rise in psychology. It is friendly to those who demand an important place for moral and spiritual activity in the universe. Finally, though here we must be content with deduction rather than declaration, it leaves in the hands of the mystics that power of attaining to absolute reality which they have always claimed, shows them as the true possessors of freedom, the torch-bearers of the race. Did it acknowledge its ancestors with that reverence which is their due, vitalism would identify itself with the mystic philosopher Heraclitus, who in the 5th century BC introduced its central idea to the European world. For his logos, or energizing fire, is but another symbol for that free and living spirit of becoming, that indwelling creative power which vitalism acknowledges as the very soul or imminent reality of things. It is in essence both a Hellenic and a Christian system of thought. In its view of the proper function of the intellect, it has some unexpected affinities with Aristotle, and after him with St. Thomas Aquinas, regarding it as a departmental affair, not the organ of ultimate knowledge. Its theory of knowledge is close to that of the mystics, or would be if those gazers on reality had interested themselves in any psychological theory of their own experiences. A philosophy which can harmonize such diverse elements as these, and make its influence felt in so many fields of thought, may be useful in our present attempt towards an understanding of mysticism, for it illustrates certain aspects of perceived reality which other systems ignore. It has the further recommendation of involving not a mere diagram of metaphysical possibilities, but a genuine theory of knowledge. Its scope includes psychology as well as philosophy, the consideration not only of the nature of reality, but also of the self's power of knowing it, the machinery of contact between the mind and the flux of things. Thus it has an inclusive quality, lacking in the tiny ring-fenced systems of other schools of thought. It has no edges, and if it be true to itself, should have no negations. It is a vision, not a map. The primary difference between vitalism and the classic philosophic schools is this. Its focal point is not being, but becoming. Translated into Platonic language, not the changeless one, the absolute, transcending all succession, but rather his energizing thought, the sun, the creative logos, is the supreme reality which it proposes as accessible to human consciousness. All things, said Heraclitus, are in a state of flux. Everything happens through strife. Reality is a condition of unrest. Such is also the opinion of Bergson and Alexander, who, agreeing in this with the conclusions of physical science, look upon the real as dynamic rather than static, as becoming rather than being perfect, and invite us to see in time the precession or flux of things, the very stuff of reality. 
From the fixed lull of heaven she saw time like a pulse shake fierce through all the worlds, said Rossetti of the Blessed Damozel. So Bergson, while ignoring if he does not deny the existence of the fixed lull, the still eternity, the point of rest, finds everywhere the pulse of time, the vast unending storm of life and love. Reality, says Bergson, is pure creative life, a definition which excludes those ideas of perfection and finality involved in the idealist concept of pure being as the absolute and unchanging one. This life, as he sees it, is fed from within rather than upheld from without. It evolves by means of its own inherent and spontaneous creative power. The biologist's nature, so careful of the type, the theologian's creator transcending his universe and holding all things in the hollow of his hand, these are gone, and in their place we have a universe teeming with free individuals, each self-creative, each evolving eternally, yet towards no term. Here, then, the deep instinct of the human mind, that there must be a unity, an orderly plan in the universe, that the strung-along beads of experience do really form a rosary, though it be one which we cannot repeat, is deliberately thwarted. Creation, activity, movement, this, says vitalism, rather than any merely apparent law and order, any wholeness, is the essential quality of the realms of the real. And life is an eternal becoming, a ceaseless changefulness. At its highest, it may be conceived as the universe flowering into deity. As the hermetic philosophers found in the principle of analogy, quod inferius, sicut quod superius, the key of creation, so we are invited to see in that uninterrupted change which is the condition of our normal consciousness, a true image, a microcosm of the living universe as a part of which that consciousness has been evolved. If we accept this theory, we must then impute to life in its fullness, the huge, many-leveled, many-coloured life, the innumerable worlds which escape the rhythm of our senses, not merely that patch of physical life which those senses perceive. A divinity, a greatness of destiny far beyond that with which it is credited by those who hold to a physico-chemical theory of the universe. We must perceive in it, as some mystics have done, the beating of the heart of God, and agree with Heraclitus that there is but one wisdom, to understand the knowledge by which all things are steered through the all. Union with reality, apprehension of it, will upon this hypothesis be union with life at its most intense point, in its most dynamic aspect. It will be a deliberate harmony set up with the Logos, which that same philosopher described as man's most constant companion. Ergo, says the mystic, union with a personal and conscious spiritual existence, imminent in the world, one form, one half of the union which I have always sought, since this is clearly life in its highest manifestation. Beauty, goodness, splendour, love, all those shining words which exhilarate the soul, are but the names of aspects or qualities picked out by human intuition as characteristic of this intense 
and eternal life, in which is the life of men. How, then, may we know this life, this creative and original soul of things, in which we are bathed, in which, as in a river, swept along? Not, says Bergson bluntly, by any intellectual means. The mind, which thinks it knows reality because it has made a diagram of reality, is merely the dupe of its own categories. The intellect is a specialized aspect of the self, a form of consciousness, but specialized for very different purposes than those of metaphysical speculation. Life has evolved it in the interests of life, has made it capable of dealing with solids, with concrete things. With these it is at home. Outside of them, it becomes dazed, uncertain of itself, for it is no longer doing its natural work, which is to help life, not to know it. In the interests of experience, and in order to grasp perceptions, the intellect breaks up experience, which is in reality a continuous stream, an incessant process of change, and response with no separate parts into purely conventional moments, periods, or psychic states. It picks out from the flow of reality those bits which are significant for human life, which interest it, catch its attention. From these it makes up a mechanical world in which it dwells, and which seems quite real, until it is subjected to criticism. It does, says Bergson, the work of a cinematograph, takes snapshots of something which is always moving, and by means of these successive static representations, none of which are real, because life, the object photographed, never was at rest. It recreates a picture of life, of motion. This rather jerky representation of divine harmony, from which innumerable moments are left out, is useful for practical purposes. But it is not reality, because it is not alive. The real world, then, is the result of your selective activity, and the nature of your selection is largely outside your control. Your cinematograph machine goes at a certain pace, takes its snapshots at certain intervals. Anything which goes too quickly for these intervals, it either fails to catch, or merges with preceding and succeeding movements to form a picture with which it can deal. Thus we treat, for instance, the storm of vibrations which we convert into sound and light. Slacken or accelerate its clock time, change its rhythmic activity, and at once you take a different series of snapshots, and have as a result a different picture of the world. Thanks to the time at which the normal human machine is set, it registers for us what we call, in our simple way, the natural world. A slight accession of humility or common sense might teach us that a better title would be our natural world. Let human consciousness change or transcend its rhythm, and any other aspect of any other world may be ours as a result. Hence the mystics claim that in their ecstasies they change the conditions of consciousness, and apprehend a deeper reality which is unrelated to human speech cannot be dismissed as unreasonable. Do not then confuse that surface consciousness which man has trained to be an organ of utility and nothing more, and which therefore can only deal adequately with the given world of sense, 
with that mysterious something in you, that ground of personality, inarticulate but inextinguishable, by which you are aware that a greater truth exists. This truth, whose neighborhood you feel, and for which you long, is life. You are in it all the while, like a fish in the sea, like a bird in the air, as Saint Mechthild of Hakbon said many centuries ago. Give yourself, then, to this divine and infinite life, this mysterious cosmic activity in which you are immersed, of which you are born. Trust it. Let it surge in on you. Cast off, as the mystics are always begging you to do, the fetters of the senses, the remora of desire, and making your interests identical with those of the all, rise to freedom, to that spontaneous, creative life which, inherent in every individual self, is our share of the life of the universe. You are yourself vital, a free centre of energy, did you but know it. You can move to higher levels, to greater reality, truer self-fulfilment, if you will. Though you be, as Plato said, like an oyster in your shell, you can open that shell to the living waters without, draw from the immortal vitality. Thus only by contact with the real shall you know reality. Cote at cote loquitur. The Indian mystics declare substantially the same truth when they say that the illusion of finitude is only to be escaped by relapsing into the substantial and universal life, abolishing individuality. So too by a deliberate self-abandonment to that which Plato calls the saving madness of ecstasy, did the initiates of Dionysus draw near to God. So their Christian cousins assert that self-surrender is the only way, that they must die to live, must lose to find, that knowing implies being, that the method and secret which they have always practised consists merely in a meek and loving union, the synthesis of passion and self-sacrifice, with that divine and unseparated life, that larger consciousness in which the soul is grounded, and which they hold to be an aspect of the life of God. In their hours of contemplation, they deliberately empty themselves of the false images of the intellect, neglect the cinematograph of sense. Then only are they capable of transcending the merely intellectual levels of consciousness, and perceiving that reality which hath no image. Pilgrimage to the place of the wise, said Jalaluddin, is to find escape from the flame of separation. It is the mystic's secret in a nutshell. When I stand empty in God's will, and empty of God's will, and of all his works, and of God himself, cries Eckhart, with his usual violence of language, then am I above all creatures, and am neither God nor creature, but I am what I was, and evermore shall be. He attains, that is to say, by this escape from a narrow selfhood, not to identity with God, that were only conceivable upon a basis of pantheism, but to an identity with his own substantial life, and through it with the life of a real and living universe, in symbolic language with the thought of the divine mind, whereby union with that mind in the essence or ground of the soul becomes possible. 
The first great message of vitalistic philosophy is then seen to be cease to identify your intellect and yourself, a primary lesson which none who purpose the study of mysticism may neglect. Become at least aware of, if you cannot know, the larger, truer self, that root and depth of spirit, as Saint Francois de Sales calls it, from which intellect and feeling grow as fingers from the palm of the hand, that free creative self which constitutes your true life, as distinguished from the scrap of consciousness which is its servant. How, then, asks the small consciously seeking personality of the normal man, am I to become aware of this, my larger self, and of the free eternal spiritual life which it lives? Here philosophy, emerging from the watertight compartment in which metaphysics have lived too long retired, calls in psychology, and tells us that in intuition, in a bold reliance on contact between the totality of the self and the external world, perhaps too in those strange states of lucidity which accompany great emotion and defy analysis, lies the normal man's best chance of attaining, as it were, a swift and sidelong knowledge of this real. Smothered in daily life by the fretful activities of our surface mind, Reality emerges in our great moments, and, seeing ourselves in its radiance, we know, for good or evil, what we are. We are not pure intellects. Around our conceptual and logical thought there remains a vague, nebulous somewhat, the substance at whose expense the luminous nucleus we call the intellect is formed. In this aura, this diffused sensitiveness, we are asked to find man's medium of communication with the universal life. Such fragmentary, dim and unverifiable perceptions of the real, however, such excursions into the absolute, cannot be looked upon as a satisfaction of man's hunger for truth. He does not want to peep, but to live. Hence he cannot be satisfied with anything less than a total and permanent adjustment of his being to the greater life of reality. This alone can resolve the disharmonies between the self and the world and give meaning and value to human life. The possibility of this adjustment, of union between man's life and that independent spiritual life which is the stuff of reality, is the theme alike of mysticism and of Yukon spiritual vitalism or activistic philosophy. Reality, says Yukon, is an independent spiritual world, unconditioned by the apparent world of sense. To know it and to live in it is man's true destiny. His point of contact with it is personality, the inward fount of his being, his heart, not his head. Man is real, and in the deepest sense alive, in virtue of this free personal life principle within him but he is bound and blinded by the tie set up between his surface intelligence and the sense-world. The struggle for reality must be a struggle on man's part to transcend the sense-world, escape its bondage. He must renounce it and be reborn to a higher level of consciousness, shifting his centre of interest from the natural to the spiritual plane. According to the thoroughness with which he does this, will be the amount of real life he enjoys. The initial break with the world, 
the refusal to spend one's life communing with one's own cinematograph picture, is essential if the freedom of the infinite is to be attained. We are amphibious creatures. Our life moves upon two levels at once, the natural and the spiritual. The key to the puzzle of man lies in the fact that he is the meeting point of various stages of reality. All his difficulties and triumphs are grounded in this. The whole question for him is, which world shall be central for him? The real, vital, all-embracing life we call spirit, or the lower life of sense? Shall existence, the superficial obvious thing, or substance, the underlying verity, be his home? Shall he remain the slave of the senses with their habits and customs, or rise to a plane of consciousness, of heroic endeavour in which, participating in the life of spirit, he knows reality because he is real? The mystics, one and all, have answered this question in the same sense, and proved in their own experience that the premises of activism are true. This application of the vitalistic idea to the transcendental world does, in fact, fit the observed facts of mysticism far more closely even than it fits the observed facts of man's ordinary mental life. 1. The primary break with the sense world. 2. The new birth and development of the spiritual consciousness on high levels, in Eukin's eyes an essential factor in the attainment of reality. 3. That ever closer and deeper dependence on and appropriation of the fullness of the divine life, a conscious participation, and active union with the infinite and eternal. These three imperatives, as we shall see later, form an exact description of the psychological process through which the mystics pass. If, then, this transcendence is the highest destiny of the race, mysticism becomes the crown of man's ascent towards reality, the orderly completion of the universal plan. The mystics show us this independent spiritual life, this fruition of the absolute, enjoyed with a fullness to which others cannot attain. They are the heroic examples of the life of spirit, as the great artists, the great discoverers, are the heroic examples of the life of beauty and the life of truth directly participating, like all artists, in the divine life, they are usually persons of great vitality. But this vitality expresses itself in unusual forms. Hard of understanding for ordinary men. When we see a picture or a poem, hear a musical composition, we accept it as an expression of life, an earnest of the power which brought it forth. But the deep contemplations of the great mystic, his visionary reconstructions of reality, and the fragments of them which he is able to report, do not seem to us, as they are, the equivalents, or more often the superiors, of the artistic and scientific achievements of other great men. Mysticism, then, offers us the history, as old as civilization, of a race of adventurers who have carried to its term the process of a deliberate and active return to the divine fount of things. They have surrendered themselves to the life movement of the universe, hence have lived with an intenser life than other men can ever know. 
have transcended the sense world in order to live on high levels the spiritual life. Therefore they witness to all that our latent spiritual consciousness, which shows itself in the hunger for the absolute, can be made to mean to us if we develop it, and have in this respect a unique importance for the race. It is the mystics, too, who have perfected that method of intuition, that knowledge by union, the existence of which philosophy has been driven to acknowledge. But where the metaphysician obtains at best a sidelong glance at that being, unchanging yet elusive, whom he has so often defined but never discovered, the artist, a brief and dazzling vision of the beauty which is truth, they gaze with confidence into the very eyes of the beloved. End of the first half of part one, chapter two.